Well, hey, everybody. I want to add my welcome to Seth's uh, welcome from earlier, especially to those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. We're so glad you're here. We'd love to meet you later. Uh, especially want to welcome among those who, of you who may be visiting for the first time, those of you who are visiting as, as people who are considering Christianity, maybe for the first time. Maybe you're interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he teaches and, and what it looks like to follow him. And if, if you're here and, and that's you, thank you for coming. We're so glad you're here. And uh, we want to talk to you afterwards if we get a chance. I also want to tell you that this part of our service, uh, if, if Christian worship services are new to you, uh, this is a part where we take part of the Bible, which we believe to be God's word to us, and spend time trying to understand it. So we, t- we take a, a pretty good chunk of our time together each week to walk slowly through the words that are there and to do what we can to cut through all, the, the, all that separates us from these words, from the different culture that they come from, the different time, the different place, the different people, the different concerns, and try to see them for what they are. And then try to understand, like, what would it look like for us to, to accept them, to affirm them, to, to obey them? So that's what we're going to do together for this next little bit, and it'll help you a lot if you have a Bible in front of you while we, while we do this. So we've provided Bibles at the center of each aisle um, if you want to flag somebody down here on the end, they'll pass one to you. Please keep that Bible. Take it with you. If you don't own a copy, we'd love for you to have it. Once you've found it, you can look in the table of contents near the beginning, and you'll find listed there the book of First Peter. It's in the New Testament, uh, which is a, a section of writings by friend, mostly by friends or, or pretty close descendants, if you will, from Jesus. Not literally family, but descendants from his word, those who believed in him and either did so because they walked with him and knew him and were friends of his or because they knew people who walked with him and knew him and were friends of his. This, uh, this, letter, this, this book we're in right now, First Peter, is a letter written by one of Jesus' close personal friends, one of the people who, who watched his whole ministry play out, who saw him die, and then who saw him alive again after he was dead and became convinced because he saw him alive again that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the one sent by God to rescue those who were suffering in a world marked by sin and death. That's who Peter believes Jesus to be. And he wrote this letter to others who'd come to believe in Jesus to try to help them understand how to live for Jesus in a world that didn't think Jesus was the real deal. He wrote to them to help them understand their identity as people who were worshiping and following, submitting to a king who has said he's come to bring a kingdom but who are still looking for that kingdom to become real and completely define their existence. They're still living with other kingdoms. They still have a Roman emperor. They still have governors over them who have a big say over, over how their lives play out. They still have friends who don't acknowledge Jesus as the king. So they're, in these, they're, they're stuck, if you will, between two worlds, the one that they belong to and have allegiance to that's still coming, and this one where they live now. So Peter's been writing to try to help them understand how to live like that, what it looks like to obey Jesus in a country that's not your true home. He's, he started uh, this week, the section we're going to be looking at in chapter 4 is the end of a big section of this letter that started when Peter started using language like this. Aliens, he said. You're aliens. Live now as aliens and sojourners, people who are, who are citizens of another kingdom living now in this one. And he wraps up this section of the letter today with a call to urgency. He tells them at the beginning of the section we're going to look at, the end of all things is at hand. That's his topic today. The end of all things. Getting into this section of letters got me thinking about the end of all things. You ever think about how things are going to end? It's a common enough fascination. Uh, I think that's 
that's pretty clear. Yeah, especially in America. Maybe it's especially in America. America's the only country I've ever known. So I don't know if other countries are as into end-time scenarios as we are. But we, it's a popular fascination for Americans and has been for a long time. I mean, in my own life, I remember one particular end-times type scenario that got a lot of press was Y2K. I guess I'm dating myself there. I was in high school. I was a teenager at the time. I, just out of curiosity, how, Y2K, was that a thing for you? Man, that is not, that's not, that's barely half of this congregation who that was a thing for you. So Y2K was, was this big scare scenario for several years leading up to the year 2000 having to do something with computers and clocks that weren't set right or calendars or something. I don't know. Um, people were really into it. I remember them buying storm shelters that they would dig into their, their backyards uh, I remember them stockpiling water and canned food. I mean, I grew up in rural Alabama. Maybe it was more of a thing there than up here. I don't know. But people were all about it down there. Stockpiles of water and canned food. They were getting generators. They, that sort of end-time scenario generated preparedness. That was the theme. Be ready for whatever's coming. Of course, nothing came. Uh, nothing. It was a big whiff. I guess the coders figured out what the problem was and fixed it. Uh, or the problem was maybe it was created by some conglomerate of bottled water and generator manufacturers. And they got their payday and moved on. I don't know, but nothing happened to it. Maybe you think, when you think about, about endings, I mean like big scale, end of all things kinds of endings, maybe you're thinking more like pop culture style struggles for survival. A Darwinian kind of survival of the fittest where it's every man for himself. I think the, the, the best and most vivid example of that that I've consumed was Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road. Powerful, um, haunting book about what it would look like in the end if, if every social structure just disappears and people really do whatever they want. Maybe that's the kind of image you have. Or may, maybe you've seen enough false alarms or enough zombie movies to think that the end of all things belongs to a fantasy genre that really isn't worth thinking about. But, friends, we do know that all things end. We know that on, on a small level, you know, and things run out in life. But, but why wouldn't that also apply to, to everything, to the world as we know it? What will the end of all things be like if we knew we were facing the end of all things, how would we prepare? How would we respond? And these are questions that Peter has in his mind when he writes the section we're going to look at this morning. He tells them at the top of this section, the end of all things is at hand. And then he gives them several commands about how to respond. What we're going to do this morning is just look at each one. If you thought the end was at hand, like Peter did, if you want to embrace Peter's view of the world, what would it look like for you to prepare, for you to act in light of the end? I think what you'll see is that his agenda is hardly the radical agenda that you might expect. I want to begin by reading this section, and then we're going to, we're going to unpack it command by command together with the time that we have left this morning. I want to invite you to stand with me. This is one way that we honor God's word while we read from it, just with our bodies standing up in his presence. Ready to hear from him? This is the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. I mentioned four commands that Peter gives us here. They are, they are far from the radical agenda that our popular culture has taught us to associate with end times. I just want to show you what each one of them are and, and, and give you some examples of how we might try to embrace these commands in our lives, how we might try to put them into practice. The first command comes out in verse 7. And I'm framing it this way. The command to pray urgently. There's number one. And in your worship guide that you should have gotten on the way in here, you'll see each of these points listed out in case you want to jot down notes along the way as I, as I move through them. Pray urgently. That's the first command coming out of the nearness of the end. Uh, the way he frames it, it's a command to be self-controlled and sober-minded. But not just self-controlled and sober-minded because it's good to be mindful, because it's good to, to pay attention to what's going on around you. I mean, that is good. You should do that. But it's more than that for him. It isn't just about about not about, about paying attention to your surroundings. It's about not being carried along by the wave of desires or numbed into taking whatever the culture around you is dishing out. It, it's not just a call of di- for discipline uh, 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 for discipline's sake. There's a reason to be self-controlled and sober-minded, and the reason is one I want to highlight here. He tells us be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's really a command to pray but to pray urgently. I don't think what he's saying here is that, uh, is that you need to be disciplined so your prayers will get answered. As if your sober-mindedness is the key to unlocking everything you want from God, a reward uh, system in place for these prayers. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think we, we could read it that way if we weren't careful, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is be self-controlled and sober-minded so your prayers will benefit from that focus, from you paying attention to what you're praying because the end requires the, the, the end requires it it's near it matters two things stand out to me about this command the first thing that stands out to me about this command is that here he is telling them that the end is at hand and he doesn't tell them to grab the guns he doesn't tell them to hunker down dig the trenches get ready for what's coming he tells them really not to do anything <laughs> but to pray he tells them to focus on god and what God can do. His first command out of his mouth is to, is to simply ask for God to do what only God can do. Because what he's told us already and what the whole New Testament suggests is that the end we're looking for, what we're hoping for, what we've put everything on, is an end we could never build for ourselves. If it depends on us and our strength, it's lost already. that's why Peter starts not with telling them what they can do, but to tell them to pray to God for what what he can do. So he doesn't say build an airtight, impenetrable shelter. He doesn't say make sure you got plenty of extra ammo. He doesn't say make sure you got access to lots of fresh water or whatever other preparedness notions we have picked up from our apocalyptic movies. He says pray, because only God can do what you really need. That's the first thing I notice about this command, that it's it's God-focused instead of on them and what they do. But 
On the other hand, the other thing to notice about this command is that he's basically telling them not to be lazy either. Yes, the end that you want, that you're looking to, that you've put all your hope in is bigger than what you could ever build. So pray. But he, he's not telling them to just like, kick back, prop up their feet and ride it out, trusting that God's going to take care of it all. No, this is an urgent faith. It's a focused and disciplined prayer that he's calling for, not a hands-off, laissez-faire attitude. Something precious is on the line. And even if you know this precious thing can only be provided to you by somebody else, it shouldn't make you sort of casual about whether or not you get it. It should make you beg for it. It should make you plead with the one who has the power to give you what you're looking to. Think about the difference, this, this sober-minded and self-controlledness. Here's an image for you to help you, I think, understand what, it, what he's trying to aim for in our prayers. Think about the difference between the way you drive on a wide-open interstate in rural Tennessee on a bright, sunny day with few cars around. Think about how you drive then and how you drive in a snowstorm with ice on the road in, a Nash, in Nashville on a crowded road with inexperienced drivers. And on that wide-open interstate on a sunny day, we had a drive like that earlier this week. Went up to... Um, sort of northwest of here, Adams, Tennessee area. I went to a state park up there and we were driving back down 24 and it's just us. Beautiful, wide open interstate with glorious fall leaves all around us and a bright sunny day. And when you're driving like that, you kind of kick back and slouch back in my chair a little bit. Maybe throw the hand up over the wheel and just have the one hand on it. I mean, I'm not going to text while I drive with that other hand, but I might not just be like locked in. I'm going to be looking around, checking out the scenery. I'm going to be having conversations with the other people in the car. There's a, there's a way of driving in that setting. But how many of you have been here for a Nashville winter where there was actually snow? Probably a lot of you have. And you know, we don't, we don't do well with that, actually. We don't do well with that. We don't know how to, how to handle it. And that makes us very fearful and turns us into even worse drivers than we normally are. And we have a road system that's not prepared for it either. So even if we had experienced drivers, I mean, I, these roads are not safe because they're going to stay icy indefinitely. So when, when I've been out on a road, on a busy road in, in a snowstorm, that's happened to me a couple of times, not often, but a couple of times. And I got cars around me. I don't trust them. I don't trust the roads. I don't trust me. So what you'll see is like my full body tensed up. And me, especially if it's actually driving snow and you can't see very well, I've got both hands on the wheel. I've got my foot right over the brake. I'm basically just coasting, ready to, ready to brake at any time. Um, I'm not comfortable. I'm, 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 I'm urgent in my focus on my driving. In other words, I'm self-controlled and sober-minded. I'm focused, paying attention to everything. And this is the kind of urgency that Peter wants us to have in our prayers because the end is near. It matters. How things end matters. And our prayer lives are, are a kind of index of our desire for the end that God has promised. How much do you want it? That's where I've been convicted by this passage this week. I mean, I, I do pray often. But I've been very convicted by how little urgency and how little discipline my prayer life has had of late. So, so if I really want this end that he's promised, 
If I'm longing for a day when my faith is turned to sight and I don't have to have any wondering at all. If I'm really wanting to see our bodies put on immortality and stop wearing out. If I'm really wanting to see God and to be with Him and seeing Him as He is to then become like Him. If I'm wanting the day of judgment that he's just finished talking about where everything is set right once and for all. If I'm wanting this end, then my prayers are going to be focused, disciplined, and aimed at what he alone can do for me. how would this look? I don't know, friends. That's a big question. I'm, uh, I'm going to rattle off a few options to get your wheels turning, but I encourage you to talk to your friends about this. So a, a kind of focused, disciplined prayer like what he's talking about. Well, I mean, one place to start is with the Bible's prayers. I think part of praying disciplined prayers is making sure that you're talking about things that really matter. Now, of course, there's also truth to, to something we, we say around here that God wants to, he wants you as you are. He's a father. You're his child. So he just wants to hear what's on your mind. He, you should bring things to him instinctively. That's a beautiful thing, and he welcomes it. But it isn't enough by itself. There's also the alignment of our hearts and what we want with his heart, what he wants, his kingdom. Think of how Jesus prayed. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so we want to we look to his word to find out what kind of things should we be praying about, disciplined and focused in praying for so pray the Lord's Prayer. You'll find it in the Gospels. Look at Paul's letters. Several of them have prayers that you can see what Paul was praying for when, when, when he was disciplined and focused on the needs of his friends. Uh, another, another example would be to pray through our church membership director. If you're a member at Trinity, there's a, a directory that we have. that has pictures, contact info for every other member. One way to bring focus and discipline to your prayers is to pray for the people you've promised to pray for and to just work through it systematically so you know you cover everybody, even if you don't know them or aren't close to them. Bring this focus to your small groups. If you're in a small group, make sure that the small group's prayers, because of your prayers in that group, are focused on the end, the nearness of it, and the vision of it that this letter and, and the rest of the Bible have laid out for us. I want to give you another example. Consider joining a prayer group here at Trinity that's, that's specifically aimed at, at disciplined, systematic prayers for our church and for our local ministry partners. It's a group called Advance. It meets once a month on Friday nights, the first Friday of every month. Uh, it's led by the Myers and the Hendersons and the Rupps, uh, and they trade off hosting it and, and coming up with this really wonderful, meaty prayer agenda. They get prayer requests from local ministry partners and from elders pastors families they get they requests from uh, our international workers that are overseas living there for the sake of the gospel they compile it all into a wonderful disciplined focused document and then they pray through it it's a great way to put this prayer uh command into practice i think i know that that they would love to have you the point is we need to be urgent focused sober-minded and disciplined in our prayers because the end of all things is at hand that's where peter starts and what we're going to see from here is that when your first move because of the end is to prayer, when in light of the end of all things you look to and long for something that you know you can't produce, 
when you trust somebody else who's sovereign, has dominion over all things, to be able to produce that end for you. It has a huge effect on your posture towards others. A remarkable effect compared to the kind of end-of-world scenarios that we may be used to consuming. You're going to see that in the next commands. If prayer is your first move and your focus in the end is on God and what He's doing and what He has promised, then look at these next commands for how you'll treat one another. Rather than think, and think, think in your background about the Y2K and post-apocalyptic movie type scenarios and think about how different they are from what Peter lays out here. Instead of, instead of a hoarding mentality or an every-man-for-himself Darwinian survival of the fittest power grab, Peter points us to love, to hospitality, sharing what you have, and to serving other people, using the resources, the skills that God has given you, not to stand for your own, but to serve other people in their needs. Let's look at these each in turn. Here's the second thing. The second command in light of the end that Peter gives us is the command to love graciously. This is in verse 8. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Because the end is near, because you're focused on God as one who's going to bring that end about, because of that, love one another. It's a core Christian posture. It is the primary command for how we relate to each other, and it covers all the other commands. In, in some ways, the other commands we're going to look at are just different expressions of love, of what it is to love one another. And here, when Peter starts here, when he says, above all, love one another, he's just echoing what Paul says in his letters. He's echoing what John says in his letters. And they're all just echoing Jesus, who said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples when you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you're supposed to love one another. Here we're just getting basic Christian ethics 101. But look at where Peter focuses this basic command. In light of the end, love one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. There's a specific form of love here that he has in mind. A love that responds to the flaws or sins of others with grace. That's the kind of love he calls us to in light of the end. Now, I think when you say here that, that he is not, what Peter is not saying is that love covers sins in that it buys forgiveness from them, gets you out from under them, wipes them away. I mean, there is a, the Bible sometimes does talk about Jesus and his death and his sacrifice for us covering our sins. And that's a huge part of the gospel story. If you're, if you're unfamiliar with what Christians believe, let me just stop right here and say one of the most basic beliefs, the one that's at the heart of it, of our hope, is that even though we have not been what God made us to be, have not obeyed him, have not loved him with our whole hearts, have loved instead things he gave us as if they were the point. Even though we have rejected him in that way, rather than embracing him and loving him, he has responded to us with more love by actually coming closer than he was before, by taking on the person, a, a, a fully human personhood through Jesus, his son, coming into, into the world like us, in a body like ours, to live a life that's perfect, one we should have lived. And then to die a death he didn't deserve to die so that we wouldn't have to die for our sins. And the gospel message is that because Jesus died and rose again, now we can be free from our sins. His death 
was enough to cover the penalty that our sins required. That's the gospel. Our only hope is in what Jesus has done for us, not in what we might do for ourselves. That's the gospel. So we aren't talking about covering sins in that sense, but in another sense. I want you to know that because I don't want you thinking about loving others as a way that you outweigh the sins you've already done. Because sometimes I think we can think that, right? That, that I know I've messed up in my life and I know I can't undo the things I've done, but maybe if I go out and kind of Ebenezer Scrooge-like start giving away everything that I have or doing sweet things to people and then by the end of my life, the scales will be in my favor again. I, that's not what Peter's teaching or what anyone else teaches in the Bible. He has something else in mind when he says that love covers sins. It's more likely here that what he's alluding to is a proverb. He's almost quoting from a proverb. Pro- Proverbs ten twelve, which says, depending on your translation, hatred stirs up dissension or strife, but love covers all offenses or sins. Hatred stirs up strife, love covers sins. That's what Proverbs ten twelve says. That's what Peter's alluding to. So what he means when he says that love covers sin, what he means is that love snuffs out what sin tends to do in relationships. What, what sin tends to do in relationships is set them on fire. Maybe destroy them. Our natural tendency when we're sinned against or when we bump into even just the limitations of someone else in a relationship our natural tendency is to, is to protect, to defend, to swing back. And if we're really hurt, sometimes our tendency is to keep the flame going, the flame that was set. You know, all, all fires need oxygen, right? So we've got a fire pit in our backyard. We're always trying to light it, and it's not always that successful, right? Sometimes it takes a lot of help. The way you help it is you just hover over it, just blowing, blowing, blowing on these embers to try to get them going again. Sometimes that's how we treat others in relationship when we've been hurt. We blow on those embers. We keep them hot. We try to get those fires stoked. And what Peter's saying is that love, well, love covers them. What kills fire? Lack of oxygen. Love is a blanket that you toss over that fire pit that puts it out. That blowing on the coals to keep something going poking at them. That's what the proverb calls hatred. I know that's an extreme word, but it's actually a good way of describing what it is that keeps us holding on to our hurts. To hold on to our hurts, we have to define somebody else as other than us. As, as a competitor, as an offender, as something else, a problem, a threat. Either way, whatever label you want to put on it, they're over here, and we're holding them out here for observation. But love does the opposite. Love, love covers that. It snuffs that. It brings the person in. Not in the sense that it denies anything that happened. I'm not saying that. Peter's not saying that. Not that it covers it up as if it pretends like it's not there. But in the sense that it snuffs out life that sin might have in a relationship. It kills the oxygen. It identifies with the person who hurts you for their good. Here's another, here's another metaphor that another writer used for what Peter has in mind here. He talked about our sins against each other as a kind of spiral effect. I've certainly experienced this, have you? Where, where you know, you, you get wronged and you wrong and you get wronged and you wrong and you get wronged and you wrong. It's like a toilet bowl and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. 
And at some point, it becomes hard to know where to stop it, much less where it started. One response leads to another, to another, and by the end of it, everybody's got good reason for treating each other poorly, and it's tough to remember what the chicken was and what the egg was. Tough to remember, but doesn't keep us from trying, does it? Doesn't keep us from rewinding, trying to make sure that at the very top of that spiral, somebody else gave the first push. And us doing that, us, us doing that in our minds, like trying to climb back up that spiral to make sure we weren't at the top of it, that's blowing coals on that fire. That's keeping it hot, keeping it burning. Love doesn't do that. Love says the spiral stops with me. That whatever has been happening between us, it's over now. Love covers it. No more spiral. No more bickering about who started what. Love takes the other out from under the microscope that blows up every wrong, even if the wrongs are truly there, and makes peace. Now, now here's a practical note, though, before we move on to the next command. Here's a practical note. Remember that what Peter's doing here is he's saying, he's saying you'll love like this because the end is near. So it's the end in his mind that grounds this command. It's when you know the end is near that you can love in a way that covers other people's wrongs against you. What does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is a really helpful, powerful, practical tool for us in our fight for peace, in our relationships. Remembering the end as a way to covering the sins of other people against you. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples from Peter's own letter. Things that he said about the end to keep in mind that I think have power to help us love one another beyond, beyond hurt. Remember, for example, what he says in chapter 1, that all flesh is like grass. At its best, at its most glorious, it's there for a moment. Then it withers and it falls how would the other person's offense land on you if you thought you or the other person would die tomorrow? What's the difference between tomorrow and 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now? Really, the difference is, is, is nothing. So the perspective of the end, of what he's put on our minds in chapter 1, should affect the magnification of the wrong we experience from somebody else. Put it in perspective. What about, the, what, about what he's just said in chapter 3, or earlier in chapter 4, rather, that judgment is coming, and it belongs to God. And against that judgment, our judgments of one another are pitiful and small. Or remember what he's already said in chapter 3, that our only hope for facing God's judgment is Jesus, who's forgiven us, who, chapter 3 says, suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Our only hope for standing before God at the day of judgment is something somebody else did for us. So who are we to stand over one another in our sin and play the judge? You can see what he's, what he's, what he's doing here, can't you? The end is near. Remember what the end means. And you'll be able to love one another earnestly in a way that covers a multitude of sins. I'm going to move on for the sake of time, though there's much more we could say there. I want, I want to show you what he says next, a, a specific example of love, example of hospitality. So the next command, command number three, coming out of the end of all things, is the command to, as I'm putting it, to share freely. So pray urgently, love graciously, share freely. His command is to be hospitable. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, he says in verse 9. Again, there's no radical apocalyptic scenario here, is there? I mean, the end is all near, so do what the whole Bible tells you to do from beginning to end. And that's be kind to other people and, and try to meet their needs when you can and have them into your life. It's a common theme throughout the Bible and certainly a big deal in the Bible's cultures and these, these uh, mostly rural, honor-shame societies. Like, like, how you put out for other people in need was a big deal. Um, so much so that, that you, know, you, you could have your reputation built or destroyed on it on how you responded to the needs of people. There are commands like this one in Romans, another one in Hebrews. It's even a qualification for being an elder is to be hospitable. And think about it. Back then, I mean, there's no hot wire, there's no Airbnb, there's no fast food to make travel easier. There's nothing convenient about traveling in the ancient world. You had to depend on other people. Basically, everybody was expected to be an Airbnb, only they didn't get paid for it and they didn't have any notice ahead of time. That's how they lived. I came across one really interesting note. Maybe this won't be as interesting to you as it was to me, but uh, in the early church, they were trying to put together, they were trying to plan for obeying commands like this one to show hospitality, and they had to come up with a church law that you only had to give this kind of hospitality for three days, max, because people apparently were just like sticking around in general. And after three days, you're off the hook, and they've got to go find a job or start contributing somehow to what you're putting out for them. I don't know. I thought that was funny. Uh, but you get the point. I mean, but in, this, in this world, both because of necessity and because of honor, shame, and expectations, hospitality was huge. But this is just another example of where Peter is not only mimicking or reflecting the common values of his time, but he's actually taking them a step further. There's something about the way a Christian should embrace this common cultural value of hospitality, and it should be different because they're aliens. Did you see the part? Oh, you got to show hospitality without grumbling. That takes it to a new level. In other words, it's not enough to meet expectations. It's not enough to rise up to whatever's needed to win honor in the face of your peers. You've got to share freely. You've got to show hospitality without grumbling. So it's not just about saving face, in other words. It isn't about making a name for yourself as a hospitable person. It isn't about proving yourself. If it is... If your motive in sharing with other people is really your reputation or what's expected of you or, or, or climbing a rung in this, in this, this honor-shame uh, ladder, if that's where you're coming from, then grumbling comes really easily, actually. Because you can resent the fact that someone else takes you up on what you offer. Even though you're going to offer it, even though you have your own reasons for offering it, you might resent the fact that somebody took you up on it. Like Jack Klompas resented the fact that Seinfeld took the astronaut pen when he offered it to him, the one that writes upside down. Boy, I just dated myself again. Like the Y2K, I should have, I should have known from the Y2K response that you guys wouldn't laugh at the Jack Klompas reference. I'm not going to describe it. Uh, I'm going to move on. Sometimes you offer something really not thinking that anyone would take you up on. They do, and you kind of internally, you're stewing on that a little bit. Or, or you can grumble about their lack of gratitude. Maybe they didn't say thank you or seem like they meant it. Or maybe you can grumble about the fact that after dinner they didn't even offer to help clean the table or rinse the dishes. Or gr- you could grumble about how much it cost you to feed them. or Any number of other things. They'd be perfectly consistent with offering hospitality Grumbling could fit right in with that, so long as you did it in an honor-shame society. 
but not for Christians, not in light of the end, not for Peter, not when love is what matters. Peter wants more than that. Not just that we show hospitality, but how that we do it freely. Friends, I think this is a, I mean, this has certainly been convicting to me this week, but a, a powerful reminder to us, this focus on how we offer hospitality over how much hospitality we offer is a powerful reminder that we need. So we are not trying to prove ourselves here. We are not trying to keep up with somebody else and how wonderfully they seem to provide it. We don't have to wait until we can compete in the open market before we start sharing. It's not about winning a contest. It's about being there, about sharing with other people. That means I don't have to wait to start showing hospitality no matter how young I am or how limited my resources may be. I mean, if it is a contest, if it's another chance to prove yourself, then, then there's lots of reasons not to join in. Well, I, I know I can't cook like she can. My house doesn't have nearly so much room as theirs does. I mean, where are people going to sit? How can I have them over? How can I have them over with this, this, this handful of chairs that I have? I don't have a spare room. How can I host them overnight? Where would they sleep? There's, there's lots of good reasons not to get into this. If it's a contest that you know you can't win. But if the point is not so much what you have to share, but sharing what you have and doing it with joy, then hospitality is right there for us, right in front of us. I don't know that I've ever seen a more beautiful example of it than a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, I, Lindsay and I are, are part of, our family is part of a team from here at Trinity that Lee Greer heads up for us in a program called Nashville Neighbors with Siloam Health. It's a, a program that connects mostly folks from local churches to newly arrived refugees to help teach them basic things about life here in, in a new city, a new country, uh, and also to build relationships and friendships. So we have this family, a family of, um, uh, of dear, dear people, believers, actually Christians who fled, we believe, uh, religious persecution in their home country. They're here with, with you know, nothing but what people have given them. And we've been trying to teach them, right, and help them. But two or three weeks ago, they invited us over, and we went for dinner to their apartment, small apartment, down on the southeast side of town. And we walk in, and their table is full, like almost spilling over with food that they've put out. I would have thought I couldn't afford to feed someone like this. That tells you something about how my hospitality typically works. I would have said, no, I, I can't give them that. I mean, we'll do something else. There were meats, several different meats. There were piles of vegetables, all of it prepared. You could tell this woman had, had been preparing for hours. They, they sit down before us and just beam while we eat. And they have almost nothing. And they're providing us with beautiful, an unforgettable example of what Peter calls for here. When the end of all things is at hand, like, why do you hold on to what you have? Why would you hoard? You share freely without grumbling. The last command is that we serve humbly. I don't have time to give this one its due, but I think the point of it is really clear. In verse 9, or verse 10 rather, Peter gives us the last of these four commands based on the fact that the end is at hand. And he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's very grace. And there's a lot we could say about spiritual gifts and what they're for in the church and how we're to use them to encourage one another and why we depend on them so much. But the main point that I think Peter has put in front of us here comes through from the fact that he's almost redundant in the way that he makes his point. His focus is on God at every step of this, of this verse. Look at it. What he comes back to over and over again is that whatever you have comes from God. That means it's about him, not about you. That means it's for his purposes, not your purposes. So serve in his name so he gets glory. Do you see it? You've received a gift. You're stewards. That means you're responsible for something that's not really yours. You're stewards of God's grace, what he's poured out into your life. And you serve so that whoever serves in everything, God gets glory through Jesus Christ. What this means, friends, is that our lives are full of things that we have, that God has given us, that he's given to us so that we can serve other people. And that the end takes our focus off of establishing ourselves. It, it removes us from this focus on what skills we have that we want to be known for and into a focus on what abilities, what resources, what gifts we've been given that meet someone else's needs. I mean, a lot of times now we use the language of gifted. We, we think about skills, don't we? Like, wow, she's such a gifted musician. I'm thinking, amazing skills. Isn't she awesome? That's what I'm thinking. A lot of times I think that's how we use that word. That's not how Peter uses it, though. When he says gifted, he means gifted. He means Whatever you have, you don't take credit for it. You didn't provide it for yourself. It's not about you. God gave you that. And he made you a steward of it. And he made you a steward of it because people need you. They need what you have, what he's put into your life. Our gifts are from God for his agenda in the lives of other people. Not about us. So we don't sit back waiting on someone to ask us to do the very thing we were hoping they would ask us to do. The one that makes us look best. And sometimes we think about gifting that way, I think, as an excuse to wait and not do the things we don't feel especially gifted at until we have the opportunity to do the thing that's right in our wheelhouse. Translation, if I'm being cynical, the thing that'll make me look the best. And Peter's saying, no, 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 you're out of that game. All you're, all you're wondering about is, do I have something in my life that they need, that they'd be helped by? If so, I know God gave it to me, and I know the reason he did was for them. And that's really the only thing that comes into it. Our lives are not showcases of what we have to offer. They are showcases of what God can supply, even through people like us. So we trust God with the opportunity. We look for needs that are around us that we can meet. And we leverage the resources he's put in our lives as best we can. This is what it looks like to live in light of the end. It means to trust God and love one another which is basically the message of the whole Bible. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace this message, to not need something more exotic or interesting than this to get energized, but to hear your call for us to, to use our lives for the good of others in light of the end and accept it, embrace it, trust you with giving us everything we'll need for it. I pray that we would trust the end to you and not need to know all the ins and outs, but focus on what's right in front of us, what we do know you've called us to, and to be faithful. We pray that in Jesus' name.